A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenkin. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Um, Someone just shared a gif with me. <laughs> Wait, they very did? Yeah, so me? I was like looking at it right as you started the show. Oh, so okay. I'm very professional. I thought you were still laughing about our conversation we were having right before. There's a lot of things I'm laughing at right now. There's a, we, there's a <laughs> I've lot. had like a rough week and I'm just a little giddy right now. Right. You know? It's a finally over. <clears throat> right. Sunday night, back to normal. Everything's normal again. Sort so, of. So here we go. Okay. One thing I wanted to briefly comment upon, and it's kind of been a topic of discussion on our Facebook uh, friend group, Yes, (laughs) is this new uh, documentary on Netflix called Evil Genius. Right. Did you, you didn't start watching it. I haven't yet. I will probably start watching it tonight and I do know the case. Right. I watched the first episode and I think I started the second one last night, but I had already started so late that I fell asleep. Right. It has no, that's not a um, critique of the show. I was, (laughs) it was like 1am and I fell asleep. Uh, It's really good. It goes really fast. Like, oh good. And I'm just like obsessed with the woman already. That's sort of the evil genius of the title. She's the titular character. Oh, you finally got to use that word. Right. It's just, it's that case where the man robbed the bank and uh, he had a bomb attached to him. And right. it basically blew up on camera. And they show that in the first episode. Are you serious? Yeah. They show the footage that they... Yeah. Because they cut it out of the news. <clears throat> well, they do some kind of weird edit to it where it happens and then it cuts away immediately. But you see it. Like, it's disturbing. Oh, I can't wait. And you watch... They have the whole thing where he's sitting there talking to them and uh, whatever. So, yeah, definitely check it out <clears throat> and talk to us about it on our Facebook group, I guess, would be fun. Even though it's disturbing. Disturbing, fine. Well, Desi, I have an update about my personal life, but it does sort of relate to the show because it's... <clears throat> sorry. Because it's Food Network related. Mm-hmm. I just got back from vacation. I was in Las Vegas, which is probably my favorite place to go because I'm trashy. <laughs> and I decided to make this uh, a Food Network dining experience. So I went to two of my most hated Food Network celebrity chefs restaurants those chefs are bobby flay and scott conant okay but do you really hate bobby flay here's the thing about bobby flay i started off hating him and over like the past two years i realized i think i like him but i fucking hate him still because he seems kind of like a bro totally and i did i did almost send you a picture of nacho the other day i see every picture <laughs> so of nacho. I think that's why i, I follow i like every nacho is bobby flay's orange fluffy cat and he has a, it's sep- a huge fucking cat and he has an instagram page and i follow the cat and bobby flay on instagram that's actually probably why it showed up in my suggested like Be- you know when you go to that right. section on instagram it was like a suggested post and because i, I like huge- every single right. picture and of i nacho. saw the cat and i was like oh my god and then i was like that's bobby flay <laughs> So I was like, that's Nacho. His cat's a fucking ginger too. Yeah, gingers are awesome. So I went to Bobby Flay's Burger Palace. It's called Bobby's Burger Palace or BBP. And You're down with BBP. 
Believe Were you me. down with BBP? Uh, look, here's the tea. It was fine. Was it the best burger I've ever had in my life? No. And Bobby Flay is the type of guy, he's like, I make the best burger. Right. My it's burgers. It's like some kind of macho, you know. I'm a griller. I make pounding. the best burgers of everyone. I, didn't, I thought they were just fine. Yeah. Did you get like chilies on it? No, because the, when I go, to, when I get your signature dish, I want like the bare, how good can you make it basic? Right. I'll know it's a good restaurant if I get the basic thing and it's fucking outstanding. But here's the interesting thing. What? You did not do that at, St- at Scott Conan's restaurant. No, I did not. <laughs> because. And I was actually furious at you. Okay. Because I really want to know what that dish tastes like. I do too. So here's, here's the weird thing. I will probably go back to Scott Conan's restaurant. Well, they have one in LA that we should go to. And they have that Is that spaghetti. the one on Melrose? Wait. Do they, is it on Melrose? Where is it? <clears throat> Beverly Hills, probably. I think it's probably Beverly Hills. So I went to Scott Conant's restaurant uh, last Wednesday. It's called Scarpetta. It's Italian. And Scott Conant is famous for his pasta. And he's also famous for being an insufferable dick about how people cook their pasta. Which, like, I get it. But he's just such a dick all around about everything right. that it's like, calm Fuck down. You. Yeah. Fuck you. I'll be the judge of how good your pasta is. So that's why I went. It was a total power move that I went there. Yeah. It was actually, I really liked, the restaurant was in the Cosmopolitan, which if you haven't been, it's, it's a great hotel. Like they have everything in that hotel. They have Milk Bar there. They have Momofuku there. Mm -hmm. They have Scott Conan's fucking restaurant. They have a really nice spa. So uh, we went there and the food was good. I had calamari. It was perfectly crispy. It wasn't overly breaded. Right. I had really good calamari recently too. That is one of those dishes. If that is you not, can fuck it up. There's so it's easily. only good or bad. There's right. only two ways. Right. And this was good. Yeah. So I I will give him props for that. His pasta was good. I did not get the signature spaghetti dish, which because because I we had ordered the calamari and it has marinara right. sauce. Right. So you so wanted I, a new flavor. I wanted a new flavor. I couldn't have honestly a when double. I saw you you showed. <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> Oops. Me either. Um, <clears throat> when you showed the pictures of the pastas that you and Brendan got, because of course I was like, what did you get? So right. photos. I was kind of thinking like, you guys should have got the pasta to share <laughs> just to taste it. Dude. I don't know. I, 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 we just, I've both- just been thinking about that pasta, like almost for three years now getting that pasta. I've been thinking about his signature spaghetti for years too. And I'm very surprised, but you know what? I go to Vegas a few times a year. I'll You'll, get it next get it time. In time. And our meal, we didn't have alcohol. So our meal was pretty inexpensive. It was way less expensive for a celebrity chef restaurant than I thought it was going to be. Like the prices were not astronomical. Well, pasta, they're usually going to be around teens to 20 early right. 20s like they're not going to be excessive right we didn't uh, get anything crazy yeah. we the meal was relatively inexpensive so i was happy about that and the cappuccino i had after was good and you said the bread came with four spreads the bread came with five different types of bread in the basket including a bread that was stuffed with salami and cheese what? so it felt like was that a free... thing you purchased or no, that came no it, so amazing. i was like that's cool because that's like getting a free bonus <clears throat> right. appetizer right and it came with three different spreads mm. so <laughs> it was like a you got an eggplant caponata um 
a butter, a, a homemade butter, Yum. and a citrus olive oil. Mm. It was perfect. Yeah, that sounds It wrong. was great. I fucking hate you, Scott Conan, but your restaurant was excellent. And I will go back. Okay. I will patronize your stupid business. But you won't go to back to Bobby Flay. I won't. Because that sounds boring. It was fine. Okay. So, um, today is is Mother's Day when we're recording this episode. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of great movie moms, actually, I've been kind of thinking about today. Who are your favorite movie moms? <clears throat> Some of my favorite movie moms are um, the one from Carrie. Of course. Like, I like someone posted on our Facebook page, the mom from... Uh, uh, psycho. I mean, I guess technically she's not really in the movie, but I would say she's a big. She plays part a big of role the of the movie. Yeah. Um, and then there's also like great Hollywood moms I like, like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, who right. have these like tell-all books by their daughters, both of them. Right. As we know, the mother-daughter relationship can be very complicated, <laughs> <laughs> some more than others. So as I said, the, a person on Facebook actually suggested to me this story. And it, we haven't done like an old Hollywood story in a while, no. I think. So so this week, I'm going to do the ultimate Hollywood mom crime story. And that is the murder of Johnny Stampanato, who was the boyfriend of glamour girl actress Lana Turner. And she was he was murdered by her teenage daughter, who was only 14 at the time, Cheryl Crane. Well, she must have had a very good reason. Of course. I mean, come on, Johnny Stampanato <laughs> doesn't sound like a great guy, in my opinion. So first, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Lana, who is the mom of our mom murder story. I'm not going to get into her whole history because it's not really about her. But basically, her big discovery is sort of a Hollywood legend right. story, like that she was discovered as a teenager at Schwab's Pharmacy in Hollywood. Uh, it's actually not exactly accurate. She was a junior at Hollywood High School at the time, and she skipped class and was at a place called Top Hat Malt Shop. And it was there that she was discovered by a man named William Wilkerson, who was um, a publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. And he thought she was stunning and hot, whatever. I mean, that's such an awkward thing where you're like, oh, that teenager's really Jesus, bangable. She right. should be a star. He hooked her up with Zeppo Marks, and he, in turn, sort of introduced her to the director, Marvin Leroy, who signed her to a contract pretty much like on the spot. That's, that's how hot she was. <laughs> um, he also, they actually changed her name to Lana at that time. I think her name was actually Judy Turner, which isn't that the name of the... The Fox from Zootopia. Okay, I'm off track. Wow. Uh, so she actually came up with a name. She's like, how about Lana? And they were like, oh, perfect. Uh, her first movie was actually um, a movie with Mervyn Leroy directing. And she had like a 10-minute part up top playing this girl in a sweater. And that's how she kind of got her nickname, The Sweater Girl. She actually <laughs> was like... Her character ends up being brutally raped and murdered shortly after we see her in this first 10 minutes of this movie. So it's like an intense movie for 1937, I would imagine. Yeah. But she kind of became famous and became this pinup sweater girl. She was like about 17 at the time. But they didn't really know exactly what to do with her. She had a big role starring opposite Mickey Rooney, uh, who was a kind of in these teen movies, the Andy Hardy films. And that was her first sort of role after this rape and murder movie. <laughs> they kind of, in that movie, they really saw this flirtatious kind of sexual side to her even yeah. more. They decided that she was like the next Jean Harlow. They were right. really going to start pushing this sex symbol aspect of her. 
So her first big role as sort of the sex symbol was in Jekyll and Hyde with Ingrid Bergman and Spencer Tracy. And by that point in Hollywood, she really had started to establish this man-eater sort of persona. She was a party girl. She was at all the clubs, like the Brown Derby and Ciro's and whatever. In fact, she had such a reputation as a man-eater that when she was next starring in these films with Clark Gable, she was in four films with him. And I think the second one, Clark Gable's wife at the time, uh, Carol Lombard, was across was in Europe or overseas selling war bonds, I think. Right. Uh, She was so worried about Lana's reputation and her husband working with Lana that she flew back to America. And that was the flight that she died in. That plane crashed that she was basically on because she was worried about her husband working with Lana. Yeah. So that sucks. Right. The um, shift to like more dramatic roles came shortly after that. She was in a movie called The Postman Always Rings Twice. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It came out in 1946. It's a classic film noir. It's an amazing movie. Um, And that was a real turning point for her. Like she really became that femme fatale. I think up until that point, she wasn't as, as, as strong of a sexy character, but this one, she definitely was more of that classic femme fatale. And the reviews were also really good for her. The New York Times wrote at the time that it was the role of her career, and Turner herself said the same about it, that it really kind of made critics see her as a real actress and not just a sex symbol. Um, As I said, it was a major box office success, and it it gave the studio kind of like, oh, let's take more risks with her and put her in more dramatic roles. Yeah. Her next big movie was also a really great classic film of that time called The Bad and the Beautiful. But in 1956, after sort of having a career of ups and downs, she was let go of her contract from MGM when they kind of started focusing more on Elizabeth Taylor. Like that was their big star at that point. Right. So she had a, you know, pretty good run there. So the other thing that Lana Turner was really famous for, as I kind of mentioned before, was being this man eater. And she got married a lot in her lifetime. She herself kind of described herself Um, as a troubled person. She suffered from depression most of her life. In her autobiography, she mentioned numerous abortions and stillbirths that she suffered through. She had alcoholism. I don't think she was ever sober, but she kind of always dealt with having alcoholic, you know, episodes. She also attempted suicide in 1951 by slitting her wrist. And that was following the end of her fourth marriage. Her death was actually prevented by her business manager who basically broke down her bathroom door and found her and took her to the ER. Like she could have possibly died if he hadn't done that. So as I said, she was, uh, over her lifetime, she was married eight times to seven different husbands. She later had like to seven different husbands. Yeah. So she got remarried to the same dude. One of them she married twice and I'll get into him in a second. Uh, she had like a really great quote. I thought later in her life, where she said, my goal was to have one husband and seven children, but it turned out to be the other way around. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Her first marriage was actually to band leader Artie Shaw, and they had kind of an interesting thing. Like, they got married after only knowing each other for four months. She was only 19, and they basically uh, eloped after, like, their first date. Yeah. Like... Oh, they were only married four months. I'm sorry. They they went on a first date and got married that night, and then they were married for four months because obviously that's not a great thing. The interesting thing about it was that Judy Garland was dating Artie Shaw at the time, and Lana basically stole her boyfriend from her. Damn. Without like, can you imagine dating someone and then the next night they're married to Lana Turner, <laughs> like after not even knowing each other? This was like a minor scandal, and it. 
I think Judy Garland even talks about it as being like something that set her down a negative path. Like right. she always was insecure. And I feel like this was just this setback of like feeling like the ugly girl and having your love yeah. stolen from yeah. the pretty girl. Right. Their relationship was not good. As I said, it only lasted four months. It was abusive and stormy, verbally abusive. I don't know if it was physical. She described it as her college education. So after that dissolved, she really picked up that party girl reputation. And that's kind of where what I was talking about earlier was happening at this period. Yeah. Uh, she dated a lot of men. And at some point, she married an actor and restaurateur named Joseph Stephen Crane, known as Steve Crane. Now, this is the guy she married two times. So the first marriage that they had was in Las Vegas and was annulled because he was not his divorce hadn't gone through from his first wife. Okay. So, I mean, technically it's not like they got, it's not like a Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor. Or Richard Burton thing, but they were married twice. Right. Um, after that separation, Crane did attempt suicide. Like that's how devastated he was about it. Uh, they did get back together though. I, as I said, and that's when she had her daughter, Cheryl, that marriage didn't last very long. Uh, it was kind of just a classic Hollywood star marrying sort of a, regular guy and it's just whatever it didn't not work gonna out. work she did have a close relationship with her daughter cheryl who was born in 1943 uh later on as a teenager cheryl came out as a lesbian which i found kind of amazing at that time to come out when you're 14 in like the 60s as yeah. a lesbian and the both of her parents pretty much accepted it right away according to cheryl in her uh memoir that she wrote later in life i always felt like i had the full support of my parents i was never made to feel that it was anything strange so that's pretty well cool. that's really cool right but she still was the daughter of a hollywood actress who was definitely a woman who loved too much <laughs> like she was a woman who needed a man in her life right. to feel good about herself right so even though they were close cheryl had like a very typical life of the daughter of a star. Yeah. She was alone a lot. She felt like, I think there was one quote, she said something that kind of was so sad where it was like, you're around a lot of people, but no one really knows you right. or is there for you. Right. So she kind of just spent her childhood kind of similar to me, like just my mom dating a lot of men and like they would be there and then they would go. And right. like that was the life. So after her divorce from Cheryl's father, Turner dated like a lot of famous people, including Howard Hughes. She dated Tyrone Power, who was also a big star of that time. She declared that he was the love of her life. In her autobiography, she actually claims that she was pregnant with Power's child in 1947, but she had an abortion because he went to a trip and married another actress named Linda Christian. So she has like fucked up life. In 1953, she married the actor Lex Barker, and Lex Barker is most famous for being uh, Tarzan, like TV's Tarzan. Yeah. He played Tarzan on TV. But this is like a really fucked up story, so maybe trigger warning? I don't know. I think around the time Lana married him, Cheryl was about 10 years old. One day, Barker, who uh, was her stepfather, lured her into the sauna and told her that it was every stepdad's job to teach their little girl how to have sex. Oh, my God. So he didn't fuck her then, but he exposed himself to her and kind of started, I guess, grooming her or pushing her in that direction. Right. He then began visiting her room every night and raping her so violently that she would have to go to the doctor to get stitches for what he did to her. When she was a little bit older, and this would only be 13 because it started when she was 10, yeah. she attempted, she started to attempt to fight back. One time she attempted to fight back 
Barker tried to suffocate her with a pillow. She eventually did tell her maternal grandmother what was happening, and the grandmother told Turner. According to Crane's um, memoir, she said that, I mean, to, to Lana's credit, the minute she heard, she was fucking. She was <laughs> like, done. She was done. Like, it wasn't like a matter of like, well, let's see. Like, are you right. sure? It was like immediate. She took a gun to Barker's head while he was sleeping and put it up to his head and was going to kill him that night. And then she said to herself, according to Cheryl, is this bastard worth the rest of my life in prison, the end of my career, everyone's life ruined? When he woke up in the morning, she ordered him out of the house and immediately filed for divorce from him. But to avoid a scandal, they never filed criminal charges against Barker. But obviously, that was a devastating influence or, you know, incident. So at this point in her life, her career was pretty much in in the shithole. Like she had been dropped from MGM, as I said before. This is the 60s at this point? No, it's 57. Okay. So it's almost the 60s. But... What happened next was that she was um, contacted to star in the film adaptation of a hit novel of the day called Peyton Place. Did you ever see this movie? Mm-mm. Okay. It's a really good movie. It's actually like one of my favorite types of genre, like a melodrama. Right. Kind of these like big budget, like some of them are in Technicolor, like yeah. just these like huge Douglas Sirk, whatever uh, type movies. So it's like maybe a movie she wouldn't have taken back in the day because it was like a little bit a little hokey cheesy. and cheesy but she did because she needed the money and she was fucking whatever she played the part of connie in the movie and this is like a single mother of a teenage girl in town and the part is kind of similar to what she was doing at her time in this life trying to pretend she wasn't this slut <laughs> like the mom in the movie is kind of like prim and proper because yeah. she's covering up a past where right. she was a little bit more wild because she has a single she's a single mom and obviously and according to Cheryl, her acting in the movie is so good because it wasn't acting. Like, this really was who she right. was trying to be at this moment, like re- renouncing her kind of party girl past. The interesting thing in the, story, in the movie also is that the, the woman, okay, she's playing this mo- woman and she's playing the mother to a daughter who actually does get raped by a stepfather in the movie. So that was really traumatic for Cheryl <laughs> to have to kind of relive yeah. almost what happened to her. Yeah. Just a year, just a few years before, her mom is playing a very similar role yeah. uh, to what had happened in real life. Now, it was around this time that Turner met a low-level thug named Johnny Stampanato. Uh, this would be like the spring of 1957, so this is like shortly after her marriage to Barker and shortly after she's filmed this movie. Okay, I'm going to give you a little background on Johnny Stampanato, which is his real name. I was actually shocked to find that out because that doesn't sound like a real name, does it? It like, sounds like a 50s gangster made up name. It's right. so stupid. <clears throat> but he's like mega Italian. Like he's born into an Italian family uh, in Illinois, but they're from like literally from his family's from Italy and Brooklyn. Like. <laughs> Like that's how Italian they are. His mom actually died six days after he was born of peritonitis, and his mom, his dad remarried. Uh, he went to like a military school in high school. He went to the. He eventually ended up in the Marines. When he moved to California, he was not a in, in any kind of organized crime or anything kind of sketchy at this point. He 
owned and managed a gift shop in Westwood called the Myrtlewood Gift Shop, which I just find to be like a really odd career choice. That's like the least gangster thing ever. It's very, it's very non-gangster. He sold things like, I mean, it was like pottery and wood carvings right. and like stuff like this in Westwood. And it was in Westwood. Right. So he seems very tame. At that point, though, he did sort of start making connections. And his big connection was to Mickey Cohen, who was a huge Oh, we've gangster. talked about him. Yeah. So he was Nicky Cohen. Mickey, basically, he was Mickey Cohen's bodyguard, or yeah. one of them probably. And he also acted like as a mild, like a low-level enforce, enforcer for the so crime he'd, fairy. he'd rough people up sometimes. Exactly. Uh, and it was also during that period that he kind of was sort of hobnobbing a bit with Hollywood society as well. He obviously knew Frank Sinatra because like, <laughs> of course. Uh, and he had sort of like a little, I don't know if it was like a flirtation or something going on with Ava Gardner. And that sort of Frank Sinatra at that point was like, hey, because I think they were fucking at that time. Right. <clears throat> I think Sinatra actually went to Mickey Cohen saying, hey, get this guy out of my fucking girl's pussy or whatever however get this johnny get this johnny stopping out and mickey cohen actually was like why don't you go back to your wife and kids because sinatra was married at this time right and mickey cohen's like i'm not getting involved in this fucking beef between two fucking hotheads <laughs> uh so at that point nikki stampanato did marry another actress named helen gilbert who i have no idea who she is she's not famous and so this at some guy's point, a star fucker. Kind of. He's like in the mix, but like at a very, very low level. Like, what does I mean, he do? He manages a gift shop? He's a nobody. Well, yeah. He just, he's like fucking all these Hollywood Right. So people. if you're going to fuck a gangster, you'd think you'd go a little higher level. Yeah. Right. At some point, he did leave Cohen's employ or whatever. <clears throat> he started dating another actress and working as her manager. So... I think he was arrested several times by the LAPD for various criminal charges, like vagrancy and ro- like suspicion of robbery and like whatever. He's like a low-level criminal. Like yeah. it's like he's barely a gangster, right? So at some point he meets Lana Turner. Uh, this was like as I, as I said, right about the time her marriage to Lex Barker ended. Initially, when she discovered that he did have ties to the LA underworld and Mickey Cohen, she tried to break off the affair because, like I said, she was sort of in this movie, and the movie uh, Peyton Place was a huge hit, so she didn't want to have any kind of unsavory scandals or uh, publicity at this point. But they were fucking attracted to each other because he's a fucking piece of shit, and she's a woman who likes to be treated badly. There's like the worst combination, right? There's this great meme I saw. um, It's like, there's like this whole Facebook page about recovery humor where like some douchebag makes memes that are hilarious because they're all true about like recovery based shit. And there's this one meme with like this cartoon drawing of like this girl like taking her panties off. And it's basically like me when I see every guy with like an ankle monitoring bracelet (laughs) who like just got out of jail and like hasn't worked any steps yet. And I'm like, that is so true. I'll fix them. I'll fix them. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? 
If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So as much as she didn't want to have this bad publicity, I feel like she also had this insecurity, like that she's this aging actress. She was 36 at the time, which is crazy to me that that was considered over the hill. Well, it's still considered over the hill, which is fucking pathetic. And he's like 32. So he's a younger guy. Right. And I'm sure it's like there's excitement and she, you know, wants to feel attractive. He gave her a gold link bracelet that had on it Lanita that she actually wore. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know why that's so lame to me. Uh, the daughter, Cheryl Crane, described him in her book as having B-picture good looks, thick set, powerfully built, and soft-spoken. He talked in short sentences to cover up poor grasp of grammar and spoke in a deep baritone voice. With friends, he seldom smiled or laughed out loud, but seemed always coiled and holding himself in. He had watchful, watchful hooded eyes that took in more than he wanted anyone to notice. His wardrobe on a daily basis consisted of roomy draped slacks, a silver-buckled skinny leather belt, and lizard shoes. But so did he like, eat ass? Yeah, and he ate ass like a motherfucker. He ate way more ass than Frank Sinatra. No, I'm just kidding. Wait, who were we talking about, or who were you talking about today that was shitty in bed? Oh, oh it was. It someone was, shared a story where Rita Moreno was like, Marlon Brando was better in bed than Elvis. And I was like, no shit. Like, no one should be shocked by this news, right? Like, Marlon Brando, another bisexual icon. Right. I mean, I just felt like there's no way Elvis is good at sex. He married a 14 year old. Like, right. That's, that's and then he tell. wouldn't even fuck her after she gave birth. Did you know that? No. Like he didn't want to have sex with any her anymore after she gave birth. So it's like, that guy's not good at fucking. <laughs> Come on, right? Let's be real. Look, he knew how to move his hips. I don't know, Desi. Sure. Uh, so <laughs> in the fall of 1957, Turner was in England and she was filming a movie called Another Time, Another Place with Sean Connery. Stompanato uh, wanted to visit her because he was a jealous motherfucker. Like, are you guys shocked? <laughs> In her autobiography, she claims that she arranged his visit because she was long lonely and having a difficult time feeling. But I think he was also uh, fucking wondering what's going on. She's with this hot actor, Sean O'Connery. And he's like, you're over he's, the line, yeah. Stompanato. <laughs> Stompanato. Stomp. Cal- calm the fuck down, Stompanato. So when they re- reunited in England, they were really happy. And then, of course, they began going back to their old tricks of bickering and fucking having these violent sort of fights and episodes. At some point she would not allow him to come to set. And that of course made him even more enraged. Right. Uh, He actually got into a fight with her after she said that he wasn't allowed to come to set. 
And he choked her and caused her to miss three weeks of filming. Wow. So he was basically at that point convinced that she was having an affair with Sean Connery. Uh, he also threatened her, saying he would cut her face with a razor to disfigure her and end her Hollywood career. And that is a threat he will come to make a few more times, and I will talk about them. Turner wrote in her book that her makeup man called Scotland Yard at some point to have uh, Stampinato deported. Stampinato heard about this plan, and then he showed up on the set of the movie with a gun and threatened her and co-star uh, Sean Connery. I think... On the set, Sean Connery actually grabbed the gun out of Stampinato's hand by twisting his wrist, and he ran off the set. I'm sorry. I don't know why that makes me laugh. I would love to fucking see that. That must be amazing, because it's like this tough guy, but he's not really a tough guy, and Sean Connery literally just disables him with a turn of a wrist, and then he runs off set. Like, how humiliating is that? Stay in your lane, Stampinato. Stampinato. (laughs) I thought I told you. Don't don't mess with me, Sean. (laughs) It's got to be the world's worst Sean Connery imitation. I think it's really good. Sure. 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 (laughs) So after that point, they both, Turner and Armstrong, both went to Scotland Yard uh, to kind of get him deported, which is hilarious. (laughs) I would love to get a bad jerks fucking guy deported. (laughs) It's the ultimate, right? I mean, you're going to have to deal with it when you go back to the States. Probably you're not really solving the problem, but it must be a great feeling. But it's a pretty good own. It's a pretty if great If your arm. boyfriend comes overseas to visit you and you're, and you're like, like you know fucking what? <laughs> deport him. I'm going to go to Scotland Yard. That's a real thing. <laughs> I'm always amazed when people actually go to Scotland Yard. It's like, that's a real thing? Like, it just sounds like right. something from a movie. So he was basically escorted out of the country and put back on a plane to the United States. So long, Stropinato. My- <laughs> <laughs> I like to hope that they fucked like fucking... <laughs> rabbits after he left (laughs) that's my dream so when lana came back to america guess what (laughs) they got back together they actually went on a vacation in mexico together um you know so stampinato (laughs) he was not in his best behavior after this and th- uh, let me just get this straight. This guy's probably freeloading off of her. Of course he is. Too. Yeah, of course he is. No one has any money. Uh he started threatening her pretty much daily at gunpoint. Uh Jesus. he even threatened that he would kill both her and her daughter. This is on vacation, by the way. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> okay, they're in Mexico and he I mean, obviously this guy is furious about what happened, but he's not gonna give up his meal ticket, right? Right. So he also claimed that he would kill himself if she tried to leave him. Classic. Yeah, move. I mean, it's all this. But Lana was getting really scared, and she was trying to figure out what to do without asking for help. As she put it, underlying everything was my shame. I was so ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know my predicament, how foolish I'd been, how I'd taken him at face value and been completely duped. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty classic situation. Yeah. As I said before, she had this reputation, and the last thing she wanted was to be this aging sex bomb with terrible taste in men who was living in fear now because her fucking she chose this fucking brute asshole. One good thing that did happen in Mexico, Lana found out that she was nominated for an act uh, an Oscar for Best Actress for Peyton Place, and that was a huge deal yeah. for her. So she returned to Los Angeles with John and with Cheryl. And John, of course, was pissed. She didn't want to take him to the Oscars with her. She took her daughter. And in the thing I read, it said he allowed her to take her daughter, which probably sounds right. Uh, Lana did not win the Oscar, but she did have a fun 
evening with her daughter uh, yeah. that night. So about a week later, on April 4th, 1958, Cheryl was still at her mom's home. She was actually on a, a visit from boarding school to go to the Oscars, and she was still there a week later. At some point during that week, Turner had told her 14-year-old daughter that she was going to finally break off the relationship with Stompanato, saying to uh, Cheryl, I'm going to end it with him tonight, baby. It's going to be a rough night. Are you prepared for it? Which is kind of a fucked up thing to say to your daughter, I think. But that seems like a classic thing where you're the star and everyone is an equal, everyone's there for you. Do you know what I mean? Like right. even your kid. Uh, so that night was actually Good Friday. Uh, Cheryl was up in her room when she heard Lana and John starting to argue. She heard John say, you damn bitch, you're not getting rid of me that easy. I'll cut you up. At that point, she came down to investigate, but Lana told her to go back to her bedroom. As she walked away, she could hear John continue to threaten Lana. Wherever you go, I'll find you. If someone makes a living with their hands, break their hands. If someone makes a living with her face, destroy her face. I'll cut you good, baby. You'll never work again. And I don't think I would. I won't also get your mother and your kid. I have people to do, to do the job for me, and I'll watch. So he's saying some pretty fucked up shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cheryl did not go back to her bedroom like her mom instructed. Instead, she ran downstairs and into the kitchen, and she saw amongst things that her mom had actually just bought that day because she had just moved into this house was a brand-new kitchen knife. So according to Cheryl, she had never used a a knife before in her life, which sounds weird to me, but I guess she grabbed the knife, and she thought she was going to scare him. She went back upstairs and banged on her mother's bedroom door, and she heard John once again threaten her mother, cunt, you're dead. He Lana, used the word cunt in yeah. the 50s? Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> no, I just mean... I, I just, know. I this is according to Cheryl's memoir. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, how would you remember it? But I feel like maybe you would remember cunt being said in the 50s. I would. Yeah, I'd be like, whoa, like, wow. Uh, Lana was crying, obviously, and begging John to just leave the house. Suddenly, the bedroom door flew open, and Cheryl could see that John was sort of over his mo- her mom in like a very threatening r- way, and he had his hand raised as if he was about to strike her. Cheryl stepped forward with a knife in her hand, and John moved right into it. In her book, she wrote, For three ghastly heartbeats, our bodies fused. Their eyes locked, and John said to her, My God, Cheryl, what have you done? He pulled backward off the knife, still looking straight at her, and fell to the ground. Uh, Cheryl dropped the knife at that point and ran into her bedroom and curled up into a ball and just was fucking crying and in shock. Lana herself didn't know what had happened. She saw that John's sweater was cut. I think she initially thought that Cheryl had like punched him. Right. But when she lifted his sweater, blood just started gushing out of him. Okay. So obviously, (laughs) due to the fact that Turner is a huge, famous actress... This was a pretty high-profile case. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it involved her teenage daughter. I mean, the whole thing was it's just so like salacious. an insane scandal at right. that time. I mean, it would be a big scandal at this time. The case quickly became like a huge media sensation. And seven days later, there was an inquest trial to sort of investigate what had happened yeah. in this case. I mean, when she showed up at the courthouse, it was literally like, hundreds of reporters there and flashing lights and she like delivered what has often been called her best performance she totally showed up at court like looking like a movie star basically like almost like if you see pictures from it it's literally like scarf 
and sunglasses arriving at the courthouse, <laughs> like, like she's a Lexus character or something like that. The first witness called in this trial was actually Mickey Cohen. Uh, and he was sort of, you know, introduced as like a celebrated mobster when he was called up to identify who Stampinato was. Uh, he actually said that he refused to identify him as Johnny Stampinato Jr. on the grounds that I may be accused of his murder. That's basically what he said on the trial. Like he wouldn't even like identify the body. Right. Basically. Turner, as I said before, arrived in like a gray coat and a gray silk like type dress. And she like just did the sort of movie star entrance into the courtroom. When she took the hand, the stand, she actually took like off a white glove and had silver fingernails. I'm sorry. And she was like trembling and just sort of controlling her tears. Like it really was this sort of dramatic performance. While she was answering questions, tears sort of strolled down, you know, or, you know, streamed down her face. And people were just like, it was insane to see this movie star telling this gruesome story. So she described Johnny uh, in this trial or in this hearing as being hyper possessive, uh, prone to fits of violent rage. Um, she told the story about what had happened in London. She told about how he threatened to take a razor to her face and disfigure her. She recalled him saying, I'll cut you just a little now to give you a taste of it in London. Um, she told, she said that when she told Stampinato it was over, he grabbed me by my arms and started shaking me and cursing me badly and saying that if he said jump, I would jump. If he said hop, I would hop. I would have to do anything and everything he told me or he'd cut my face and cripple me. And if when it, when it went beyond that, he would kill me and my daughter and my mother. She said that she tried to shield her daughter from the scene. I broke away from his holding me, holding me, and I turned around to face the door. My daughter was standing there, and I said, please, Cheryl, please don't listen to any of this. Please go back to your room. When Cheryl returned to the room, she said that uh, she could hear the raised voices as Turner said to Stampinato, don't ever touch me again. I'm absolutely finished. This is the end, and I want you to get out. I was walking towards the bedroom door and he was right behind me. I opened it and my daughter came in. I swear it was so fast. I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and they parted. I still never saw a blade. After Turner's testimony, the 12 member coroner's jury quickly reached a unanimous verdict that it was justifiable homicide. Oh, thank God. Well, that's exactly what Lana Turner said when they, Wait, they really? did the, Yeah. She said, thank God, when they returned their results. So Rachel is uh, a psychic. <laughs> she, this is like very 1957 for me. She was immediately put to bed and given sedatives. Like, that is what I want every day. <laughs> put me to bed and give me sedatives. I need to sleep. <laughs> I, I'm always like fascinated by the, the pill culture of like the 50s and 60s. It's so it's, 50s. I mean, I know it's not glamorous but there is something kind of glamorous about it let's be real <laughs> in theory so i mean obviously stampinato's friends and family were not too thrilled right. with this result one of the friends one of his friends at the time after the hearing said it's a lie the girl was in love with him there was jealousy between her and her mother he was a gentleman that's more than the rest of you hollywood people are uh newsflash she was a lesbian uh right so there was some other theory that was that what came up in like a civil lawsuit that did happen after this this trial or inquest that was filed on behalf of Stampinato's son. He did have a son from a previous marriage. And in that civil trial, the theory was that Turner had stabbed Stampinato and made her daughter take the blame. And I'm going to get a little bit more into that 
in a second. So after that point, Crane, she did have like a troubled period. She was in juvenile juvenile hall during the period of the inquest, which I don't think was that long. And she had two suicide attempts in her teen years. Um, She was a ward of a court temporarily at her request after the inquest. She ran away. She was in boarding school. She ran away again. And at some point she was put into whatever, an insane asylum or a sanitarium, whatever it would have been called back then. She also had a period where she was addicted to drinking and pills. So it's not that funny, Desi, because pills are serious. (laughs) Well, Cheryl... (laughs) To be fair to Cheryl, like she did she have had a, a fucking, fucking yeah. hell of a childhood. Totally. Um, she did uh, early on in her life meet a female model who is named, I think her name really is Joyce, but she's called Josh Leroy. And they have are still partners to this day. So they've been together a really long time. So she did find love, which is great. Oh, that's good. There was some, some one of the things I read said that, they moved to Hawaii and she became a real estate agent, which is not the life I want for her, but I guess it's fine. So I just have a thing with real estate agents. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is a very niche uh, comment from Desi right. that only I know the story and, and it's going to stay that way. So, but obviously this murder haunted her or still haunts her to this day. Cause it's an insane, it's so crazy traumatic. story. Um, someone at the time, felt that Cheryl was blameless and felt like the mom put her in this situation, basically, even if she didn't do the killing, she had put Cheryl in this life that was horrible. And she had an almost um, complete lack of any reference to moral sensitivity to being in the presence of the child. He said that Cheryl isn't the juvenile delinquent, Lana is. And that is very true, I think, for a lot of troubled mother-daughter relationships. Mm -hmm. So despite this big, huge scandal, which seemed like it would ruin Lana's career. It did not ruin Lana's career. In fact, she had one of her biggest movies ever shortly after it. And I feel like the scandal fit this one particularly well too. That movie is called Imitation of Life. And it is one of my all-time favorite movies. Have Mm -hmm. you seen this movie? Mm -mm. It's one of those movies I talked about earlier, like a Douglas Sirk sort of like huge melodrama about two single moms. One is white and one is black. And they both have struggles with their teen daughters. I think the director clearly wanted her because of what had happened with right. the scandal because it just kind of fit too much in the movie. She becomes a movie star and neglects her daughter um, until her daughter becomes involved with her mom's boyfriend. Right. <laughs> so it's very like on point to what had just happened in her life. Cheryl was actually really hurt by the movie that she felt like her mom kind of took it insensitively and it was just too close to home. And right. this is like the second time she's done this too. Cause she did it with Peyton place. That was basically what had happened. Cheryl also the movie was a huge hit and Lana did end up making a ton of money from it. And she had like a moderately, I don't want to say successful career, but she worked up until 1980 pretty much all the time. So I'm going to go back to the rumor that Lana Turner is actually the one who did the murder. Uh, there is a historian named Darwin Porter and he, had a book that came out saying that he had evidence that makes her the prime suspect in the fatal stabbing of Johnny Stampinato and that the murder happened after Lana did find her 14 year old daughter in bed with Johnny in her Beverly Hills home. The book is called Lana Turner hearts and diamonds take all. Uh, and in that, in that book, Mr. Porter has interviews with a lot of the case's key figures, including the detective at the time, Fred Atash, who tells us a different story than what, 
was said in the um, inquest and what the, you know, Cheryl and Lana had said was their story. Mr. Atash uh, admitted to rearranging the crime scene with Ms. Turner's lawyer, Jerry Geyser. He also said that Mr. Geyser, who Turner actually called before she called the police, urged his client to let her daughter take the blame because as a minor, she would not face a trial. The book also claims that Mr. Atash said, I was the one who wiped the fingerprints off the knife in Lana's bathroom sink. I was a naughty boy doing what I'm not supposed to do. He said that? That's what he said. I'm not making this up. (laughs) I would never say that. That's a quote from him. Some of uh, Miss Turner... Ms. Turner's close friends also confided to the author of this book that she had confessed privately to the murder. Uh, He said in an interview, the evidence is overwhelming. Mr. Atash also recalled that he had received a desperate call for help from Mr. Geyser, the lawyer. Geisler told me what had happened. Get right over here. Stompanato's on Lana's bed, which looks like a hog was butchered. He went on to say from... What I gathered, Lana had walked in on Johnny in bed with Cheryl. Both of them were in post-coital sleep. And Lana confessed to Geisler that she bought the kitchen knife the day before to protect herself against Johnny, who was threatening her. When she'd assumed he'd seduced her daughter, she went for the knife in a drawer in the nightstand and plunged it into his stomach while they were sleeping. According to this guy, they had re- her and Cheryl rehearsed their stories completely before they called the police. And then when Cheryl was crying that she didn't mean to kill him when the police arrived, like that was all sort of a plan uh, thing. He initially, this, this detective was suspicious about the absence of blood and fingerprints because it was such a bloody scene and there was no fingerprints or like smeared blood, whatever. It looked like it had been cleaned up slightly, I guess. And, uh, he basically thought Mr. Geisler had tried to cover up the crime The case against them, though, was closed after they told the police chief they had a dossier on him, which could end his career. So he, according to him, he didn't push it because he would have They had a dossier on the police chief? Yeah. Or the detective, not the police chief. Okay. Um, Another one of Lana's lovers at the time, Peter Lawford, who was in the Rat Pack, he claimed that she called Sinatra that night, uh, the night of the murder, and that he came and slipped out before the police arrived. According to the author of the book, Porter, he said that all the rat packers knew that Lana did it. <laughs> that seems kind of dramatic to me, but wow. whatever. I mean, I find that a, to be a believable story. Yeah, either way, he, either way, he deserved to die. He sucks. I don't care about him, but either way, I find like, I don't know. I mean, it's not so far-fetched. I no. could buy that that, that that would happen, but right. the daughter has never said that that's what happened. Um, this story has actually been in a few like media things it was probably the biggest thing was in la confidential there is a scene at formosa cafe Uh, i don't think it's that long but it's like hi you see lana sitting there with johnny stampanato just like a sort of like a you know almost like a little easter egg like oh that's johnny stampanato like right people in the know Right. right so Lana got married several more times, as I've said before, in her life. No one notable, really. In 1980, she had a religious awakening and became a devout Catholic. She did sort of have a reconciliation with Cheryl. Like, they did they did get close at the end of their life. And as I said before, she has that girlfriend now who she met at a party at Marlon Brando's house, actually, in 1968. So they've been together a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and... Lana did die at the age of 74 in 1995 after a long battle with throat cancer. That's the story. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I agree with you. Both 
stories are plausible. Right. I tend to believe what the daughter said, especially since she has confirmed that later on in her life as well. There's no reason for her not to admit it now. Right. I mean, her mom is dead. I don't think it would affect her legacy in any way. No. I mean, because that story doesn't make her sound bad either because clearly if, even if she had had sex with Johnny Stompanato, if they had some sort, that's still statutory rape. That's not her fault. She's still a victim in that situation. Right. And if Lana had killed him, I feel like that would have also been justifiable. It's but I feel it, like it probably would have been a longer trial right. than it was with the daughter, maybe. More salacious, I, I honestly, too. The only way that I feel like Lana comes off looking bad in that situation is that she made her daughter take the blame for something she right, did. I mean, so that is sort of that's whatever. Shitty. But I, I can see ultimately thinking it paid off because it would have maybe been more horrible the other way around. Right. I don't know. It's a tricky... It's a tricky thing. Yeah. But I do buy I do buy both stories and I'm gonna take Cheryl's word for it. She actually too. does seem pretty considering everything that happened to her, she's like a very even keeled, sort of seems reasonable person. Like yeah. uh, I do wanna read her book. It does sound interesting. Yeah. Um, what a life. Yeah. <laughs> like what a childhood. I know. I didn't know that stuff about um Tarzan. Tarzan. I mean that was just insane. So when that I was guy never went to jail or anything? No. They never prosecuted him. I mean, and that is like, I mean, that's beyond like just an inappropriate whatever. Like that's three years of abuse. Like, I I don't know how she didn't kill him. Like, right, right. (laughs) I mean, seems like more insane to me. Like Lana wasn't faced with, I think it's easier to kill someone. You're actually faced with physical death, right? Physical death. (laughs) Like when someone's trying to kill you, you're going to like, you're not going to do it. I think in that sexual abuse situation, I mean, you might eventually, but right. it's not as like an immediate thing, I think, as like, it was I'm going to die right now. It right? was yeah. self-defense. Totally. So, yeah, that's that story. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> what? Do we thank our patrons? No, have we didn't thank them yet, but we did have patrons this week. If you guys would like to have access to our bonus episodes on our Patreon page, they're available at patreon.com slash Scene. And this week we had some people donate to us. Let's read these. Okay, so we had Elia, Taylor, Christopher, Michaela, Campbell, Claire, Judith, Donald, and that's it. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys so much. And as we mentioned up top, we have a Facebook group where we do talk about cases all the time and you can make suggestions or talk to us about things you want to hear. Right. So we do, we're on there. I think a lot, both of I, us. I check it every day. Yeah, me too. Um, and I think, I think some people have said like, Oh, are you on your Patreon? But we don't really, the Patreon is not that great to communicate with, but no. we definitely communicate more on the Facebook page. Right. So if you, you want to talk, talk to us there. there or talk to other people who like the show, I think it's a talk pretty, about true crime stuff. It's a pretty fun group. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it. Right? And I'm going to watch Evil Genius now. Oh, yeah. Watch Evil Genius. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that next week. Maybe. Totally. And that's that. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hold up. 